0: Hello, and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, back from my week vacation uh, where I took last weekend off, and we are back with Cyprian Ivanov. Hey, Cyprian.
1: Hello, and welcome from the future. (laughs) Also, there's a slight time delay with the video. Yes,
0: yes. We have a little bit of choppy video today, and um, that is just what we're going to deal with. Uh, The audio seems to be coming across well, and this primarily being a podcast, uh, that is what I care about most. And so uh, excuse the bandwidth issues or choppy video if that is coming across in our feed to you. Uh, Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. And this week, we are continuing our discussion of... Uh, short and long term, traumatic and stressful and and difficult consequences of being involved with Scientology and the Sea Org and. It's interesting because just today I was reading some apologetics, sort of academic literature about Scientology, a group of academics who were commiserating about how nobody really seems to take their whole new religious movement thing seriously. And yet at the same time, they were also uh, comparing and contrasting the difficult time that the Church of Scientology gives them when they're trying to study it, Uh, which is, of course, par for the course for Scientology, because it's not there um to agree with academics or think that academics really know anything useful or productive or helpful to what scientology is doing so scientology really you know tends to consider academia and academics as a big waste of their time unless they need something from them and and yet the the academics who are who get used in this way seem to seem to lament that this is the, the case that their work isn't isn't uh, is in depth and uh, as awesome as they would like it to be um, and yet look at Scientology this very legitimate religion that they should be studying and should be giving all this credibility and credence to. Um, and yet, look at how awful Scientology is. And this kind of this this argument goes round and round between these guys, and it's very hard to come out of this with a with, with anything sensible, as far as I can tell. It's very confusing. Anyway, I'm just I'm just ranting about academia again, but um, yeah. Anyway, uh, so let's continue our discussion about all of this. I'll probably just chop all that little bit out because it really didn't go anywhere. Oh, please don't. Please don't. (laughs) I just, I, I am endlessly frustrated, but I am actually still, the reason that that whole little rant didn't go anywhere is because I'm still thinking through how I want to address um, this the this work. I've got this booklet of, of essays from these people to, to to start taking apart again. For uh, I'll be doing some write ups for Tony's blog for the Underground Bunker this week. Um, uh, starting this week on that, and so I'm still. I just finished reading this this first article this morning, and it's still going around in my head. And I I guess the thing that I find upsetting about these people is that they. They want to give credence and legitimacy to the Church of Scientology and treat the study of Scientology as a legitimate exercise while they at the same time lament all the characteristics of Scientology that make it difficult and and hard to study or reconcile while never acknowledging and refusing to acknowledge the simple fact that the Church of Scientology is a destructive cult with an intent to deceive, Um, to harm. When I talked to a sociology professor
1: about my interest in studying Scientology as as a culture, his reaction was anger at using the word cult because he reacted not to the idea of Scientology, but the idea of cult being anything more than a vague pejorative. Right. And he really does, he really seemed to treat uh, the existence of of a negative term like cult as inherently unacceptable rather than just a judgment that needed to be determined.
0: Exactly, my point. That's exactly where where a lot of these guys are coming from, and and it is, First, I'm proud
1: to say that my law professors were a lot more judgmental.
0: <laughs> well, the thing is that um, that there is that cult is a trigger word for people, and inside and outside of academia, and I get that, I really do, but they dismiss it without even really looking into or trying to engage with the the literature or the or the 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 definitions and characteristics that we have put forward in an academic way, not just in some layman loosey-goosey way, about what we are talking about when we're talking about destructive cults. Or you could call them totalist groups, authoritarian groups, high control groups. There's lots of synonyms for this. But unless you, you know, if it, there are certain circles in academia, especially in religious studies and sociology, where if you speak about a group in a pejorative way, as you say, using the word cult, then you are automatically dismissed out of hand as though you are not serious, you don't know what you're talking about. And this is exactly what you describe. It's a personal bias of, of some power. And, and, it, and it really colors the view of certain religious st- scholars and, and sociologists in their ability to determine the destructive nature of certain groups. They just don't want to go there. They just absolutely will not consider that groups like Scientology are built on an entire model of deception. And they, they, they feel very, very like offended somehow that that could be the case or that somehow you would assert that a group could be destructive. And
1: it's very hard to no. prove that a group is built on deception because well, there is a wide range of what people consider plausible. I know. But what we can solidly prove is the way Scientology and especially the Sea Org Stresses people out, and leaves them with long-term negative effects.
0: Well, we can, but even that was argued in this paper I read today. Well, you know, they talk about how traumatic it is and how awful it is and how destructive it is, and really, we don't see very much evidence of that at all. And I'm like, then you guys are bothering the bother sorry, me sorry. Sorry. Who wrote that? Oh, uh, this was a conversation between four academics. I'll be I'll be publishing on it on Tony's blog later this week, I believe. So by the time this podcast posts, it should already be up. If if I if I pull off my plan, otherwise it'll go up next week. As far as this goes, I you know I don't know that it's so hard to prove. By the way, um, uh, how deceptive Scientology is. I mean, when you have endless numbers of testimonials from former salespeople who were in the church talking about how they not only came up with their own clever ways of deceiving their, the, the people they were selling Scientology to, but that it was built into the nature, the, the, the policies of Scientology, the sales techniques of Scientology to lie, to deceive, to, to, to falsely you know, promise results that are never, ever going to happen and that's built in that's baked into the actual organization and you're describing
1: instant you're describing institutionalized fraud and deception
0: yeah exactly exactly we can also
1: point to uh the health consequences of people who were in the c org
0: yeah that's right done those interviews as well So it's frustrating to see people who have, you know, pedigree, have have letters after their name, who take themselves very seriously, talking in a very serious way about how Scientology is really not that difficult, not that destructive, not that harmful. You know, when I and you and 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 my audience understand that it is that it is these things and that that it is these things in spades. And and so you you definitely feel a little, I, I feel, you know, a little upset about that sometimes. And uh, I can understand
1: that. that. I think Jeremy was absolutely right to call Scientology a threat to the Constitution.
0: Yeah, that's right. Because that's, that's exactly what it is. It seeks to tear down governments and replace them with Scientology. And not just as a matter of persuasion, but as a matter of criminal action. That's right. L. Ron Hubbard specifically said in his policies that we will run things one day.
1: And you can run things. You can be the law because you won elections, but that's not how Scientology works.
0: Nope.
1: And the behavior uh, and the Clearwater City Council is a reminder of why not.
0: That's exactly right. And so, you know, authoritarian groups are going to be authoritarian. That's what they do. You know, I just don't think they need to be assisted by naive people who see good in things that are not good, you know? And I think that's where my frustration at that class of people is coming from. I appreciate the 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 multiplicity of views i appreciate the fact that i am coming at it with a bias and they are not necessarily coming at it with my anti bias and so therefore they have the ability to see things that maybe i can't see or consider things that i wouldn't consider i appreciate that i really do try to stretch my my boundaries and my bias and try to to look at how else can we legitimately research or look into a group like Scientology or the Sea Org and how, what, what kind of productive conversations can we have about this? But I, I, I draw the line when it becomes a, a kind of apologetics where we're now saying things about this group that are just patently untrue.
1: And I'd say there's yeah. another parallel with communism. Uh, there were communists and anti-communists who reacted to it. And then you had anti-anti-communists who reacted more strongly to the uh, perceived excesses of the anti-communists than to whatever was happening in the USSR. Sure. With the result that, oh, McCarthy is falsely accusing some people. That means everybody who... uh, was accused of being a communist. Was innocent. Right. Or oh, there's this person who made up this minor lie about the Soviet Union. Therefore, the Soviet Union must be great. Right. It's a counterproductive reaction that ends up perpetuating both of the problems.
0: Bingo. It's great. It's a great way of putting that. It's exactly right. Well, moving right <laughs> along, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, from, now for something
1: uh, completely different.
0: <laughs> yes, uh, to the main topic. Just because that's on my mind, and just because this whole thing is on my mind, of course. Um, so, so we're going to talk about we're going to talk about stress today. We're going to talk about trauma. We're going to talk about long term effects of this. Uh, our shows before, up to leading up to now, have been uh, really concentrated on short term issues with the Sea Org and Scientology. Uh, mostly in regards to if you're a staff member or a Sea Org member working for the Church of Scientology, you are really putting yourself in a hot seat of trouble because you're going to get a lot of demands on your head, and those demands are going to be very unreasonable, and they are going to be very time-specific. They're going to be very time-crunch kind of quotas and, and targets and things you're expected to get done in terms of your individual production as a staff member. And if you don't pull it off or if the organization as a whole is not succeeding, it's your fault individually as a person, you're not working hard enough. And that we've talked about at length and it creates quite a few issues with people. It can create a lot of stress. It can create a lot of concern. It can create, you know, issues, uh, physical issues, health issues. And so now we want to look at maybe a longer term look of that, like what happens over the longer term and Cyprian, what? Where are your thoughts on this?
1: Uh, short-term stress can produce almost r- miraculous results in the very short-term. But when it's prolonged, you end up with the opposite. Yeah. And a lot of organizations end up chasing the dragon. Uh, they get addicted to the short-term boost in productivity and try to get that back by subjecting people to stress again, and again, and again, and the result is not an increase in productivity. It is uh, people stop responding to it, and the body stop responding the same way to stress, and it goes from immediately helping survival to a bunch of chemical changes, hormonal changes that end up just making them sicker, that make them less mentally Uh, adept and ends up impairing organizational productivity.
0: Big time. Would you, putting malice aside for a moment, or, you know, narcissism or, or awfulness in terms of personality, could we also say or consider that Without in any way attempting to lessen the problem or justify it or rationalize it, I just mean in terms of explanation, could we see that or say that perhaps one of the reasons for this in or out of Scientology is a lack of know-how on the part of management or the executive structure overseeing this kind of production? Absolutely. You know, they just don't know what they're doing. (laughs)
1: abso it's a problem present in many organizations. It's just more extreme in the Sea Org. I think part of that is because of the weekly accounting of statistics. But it's a problem present in many other fields, yeah. uh, ranging from uh, the military, and you'll see people aging faster than they would outside of it. Uh, you see that in the tech sector, where people end up uh, being subject to crunch time. And there are a lot of accusations that it makes people sick, unhappy, stressed out and unproductive. And I believe it. Yep. You see, you used to see that more in construction and piloting, but now safety regulations require that pilots get rest. And I think that goes a long ways to not just pilot happiness, but frankly, safety and the ability to spot and respond to
0: problems. Yep, that's right. In fact, I'll, I'll push that out further and say that I think we're seeing that kind of thing across the logistics sphere, um, because logistics as an industry, just so everybody knows, travel, moving things, getting things from one thing to another, that's that's the biggest industry on the planet. in in terms of a kind of job or a kind of work that gets done. And I I think that we see that this kind of um, more modern thinking, you could say, about how people should be doing their work is, is as you mentioned in pilots, we see this in truck drivers, for example, or driving as well it's 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 actually a, a point of regulation now that you have to have x number of hours of sleep. You can only work X number of hours driving your vehicle around or piloting your plane or whatever. And these are these are recent innovations that are that are really flying in the face of centuries of you know people having a bit of a different attitude about work.
1: They assumed that if you were awake, you could do everything you could uh, when you were fully rested versus when you weren't. Uh, Frederick II, I think, tried to stay up for weeks at a time with a huge amounts of coffee. There was always some pretty wild ideas towards the end, but people did not understand how drastically stuff changed. That's right. I really think a number of rather tragic incidents of friendly fire and atrocities happened in World War II because people were sleep deprived, but they were still functioning because of stimulants. Agreed. Stimulant abuse is another side to the whole uh, sleep deprivation and pressure to perform issue.
0: That's right. That's right. I agree with that completely. Yeah, there's a lot of factors at play here, but this attitude of, I think what we're focusing in on right now with this is the specific attitude that um, that yeah, what you just said. If, if people are awake, then they can work, and they can, and the work that they're doing at hour nine should be the same quality and intensity as the work they're doing at hour one. And if it's not, then it's somehow a failing on the part of the individual. Not the group. It's not the group demands that are wrong. It's not the boss who's wrong in wanting more production. It's the individual for not producing it. and uh, and this is an attitude that has been in the industry forever. And uh, since industry has been industry, and we have to constantly, push back on this. Um, and this is this is actually part of the reason labor unions were formed up is to demand some rights for the workers and and get them to get these tyrannical bosses to chill the hell out, you know? And this is where the eight-hour workday and child labor laws and all of this stuff stems from this basic impulse to, you know, hey, let's chill out on abusing the hell out of our workers for the sake of of making more paper clips for people. You know, we can, we can, we can calm down on this. They don't need every paper clip right this second, you know?
1: (laughs) And I'd like to point out, there's a big difference between uh, making more paper clips and staring dumbly at a machine that's supposed to make paper clips, but you're there rather than resting. So you, you just don't have the mental acuity to properly make paper clips. Exactly. Because the goal is to make paper clips, but just shoving people and yelling at them does not make more paper clips. Exactly, and a lot of low-level managers often forget that. I believe one one line of thought calls it presenteeism. Just being present doesn't mean you're a productive.
0: I, I, I and I and I would agree with that. Um, and I'm looking here at an, an interesting study. I, I, I can only describe this graph. I can't throw it up on the screen here, but it's interesting to me that there was a study done on the impact of extended overtime on construction projects. And um, and the idea being here that if you're gonna put in a 60 hour work week, there's a graph here showing from week one, or sorry, at week zero, at the very beginning of the graph, you have 100% output. But then after a week of that it falls to about 85% output. And then you get a little bit of a resurgence the next week and then it's a steady stream down down down. And this is efficiency now. This is this is and this is controlled for proper management, proper organization so people can get the work done and they're being told and directed to do it in a competent way. But if you change from a 40-hour work week to a 60-hour, 50 50- or 60-hour work week, you get without fail um, a a fall down, but so that by week 12 of this, you know, intense work week, you're down to 65 percent efficiency compared to where you were at week zero. So it's actually every single week is below 100 percent. There is no net gain in pushing overtime of the 60-hour work week. It, it, it results in less efficient people 100% of the time for every week moving forward. I find that fascinating in terms of an actual study. I'll, I'll link and that's, it in the show notes. And
1: that study was heavily done on the construction industry where the stuff is more measurable. Right. One suspicion for a number of police incidents is that you have cops who've been pulling longer shifts and who are therefore less mentally able to handle incidents. That's right. And one of the issues with uh, public worker uh, pay is that when you have a shrinking number of uh, cops, firefighters, etc., y- there's a temptation to work them longer hours. Yep. And that might be be affordable in the short term, but the result is you have people who are tired, stressed, and not able to handle politically sensitive incidents. And you also have pressure, even when there isn't a political blowback, that they aren't handling the incident as well as they should be. They may not be investigating properly. They might just say, okay, the fight's over, I'm going to leave, even though they really should be arresting one of the guys who was fighting.
0: That's right. Well, and, and here we bring this up, but you know, we do still happen to be in the middle of a pandemic. And if you want to talk about a place where people are stressing and where work and overtime is being taken to a you know a ridiculous place, it is in our hospitals, in our ICU. medical staff have been talking about quitting. That's right, and why? Because they're stressing out, and it and and it, it, I, I think it's very important to recognize that the doctor who you're talking to at hour one or two or three of his shift or her shift is not necessarily the same person you're talking to at hour 15 on their shift. And that that over time is going to create medical problems for people because the the human beings involved are just not going to be as good on the job as they should be. And it's not a moral question, you know, it's a it's an efficiency question.
1: It's a plan. It's an
0: awareness and planning issue. There you go. So and I think this has to do with, you know, hospital administration and all that, too. Oh, trust me, there's a lot of complaints
1: about that. Yeah. Uh, Including physical safety, like the way nurses and staff get assaulted by some patients. And the hospital administrators uh, order people not to uh, file charges. So their hospital staff are sometimes vulnerable to violence, wow. and they can't respond to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I think we've highlighted pretty well here that this is not just a problem within the Church of Scientology, But it is an exacerbated situation within the Sea Org and the Church of Scientology, because it's whereas, you know, we are we are talking here about, you know, emergency situations, pandemic situation, cops. I mean, people who are who are in the line of fire, you know, all the time. Churches. (laughs) uh, self help groups. (laughs) You You have the time to do
1: proper planning. You do not have the excuse of an emergency going on right now. You have time. You have resources to plan. You do not have an obligation to run into a burning building right
0: now. That's right. But the problem with the high control group or, you know, dare we say a destructive cult, and this is – habitual this is routine this is very characteristic of lots and lots of cults is they artificially create that emergency environment and that's what i've been on about for years in talking about the sea org is how it's an artificially created emergency stressful you know almost combat like situation sometimes where things are just so intense and they are made that way by people who are doing that on purpose in order to keep people, the followers, the, the, the workers, in a frantic, excessive emergency mindset where they don't think too much about questioning what's going on or pushing back against what's going on because they're too embroiled in a disastrous emergency thing that they think they're dealing with or handling, which is really no such emergency at all. It's, it, it's completely artificial as to whether you're going to get punished or not if you don't make your million dollar quota this week. But what real world consequences are there for the Church of Scientology if it doesn't produce a million dollars this week? There's none. The staff are still not going to get paid because they don't. (laughs) The orgs are still going to be hobbling along because they're not being supported by management. The money is just supposed to go up. So there really isn't any. I mean, if
1: you you assume that uh, Scientology is doing something, there might be real world consequences. But the thing is, Scientology is an environment in which they have the, time to do long-term planning. So, OK, time. See, they just pressuring don't, don't, a person they to nobody. do $1 million this week, uh, which causes them to sacrifice uh, uh, $20 million over the next year, is a bad choice. Because you have the environment to plan that. But that tunnel vision, is a routine thing and that's not isolated to scientology. Right. It's right. just so much more visible in scientology because those because it's such a top-down structure that we can trace the decision making more clearly.
0: That's a, that's exactly right. And let me add another layer of of nonsense to this because You have within this world, and this is what I was doing my nut for years and years as a staff member and then as a Sea Org member, is you have these books of policy letters and and just pages and pages of instructions on how to run an organization. And Hubbard said over and over again throughout the policy letters that planning is important, that, that proper... You know, a sequence of events that you write a program, you do these steps, and it'll take you where you want to go. And this is how Scientology conducts itself is through writing these programs and executing these targets and getting things done that way. It's a fairly, administratively speaking, it's it's not a bad way. And when they say
1: planning,
0: do they mean uh,
1: making calculations or do they mean just writing stuff up? And I get the impression they're writing stuff up and calling it planning rather than doing a timeline calculation to see how much people can actually handle.
0: Well, see, that's the thing. The person who writes the programs or who implement, or who is, or is putting down this kind of tactical planning, and this is supposed to be the job of middle management and upper middle management within the structure, but it, but it never works out that way as it always comes from the very, very, very top. Because any planning that gets done in a sensible fashion by middle management, lower and upper middle management, is just cross-ordered or or not cross-ordered, is sort of canceled out by the orders that come from the very top. So you might have a person like me who was working at the continental level trying to figure out how are we going to get 20 auditors in every single org, every single church You know, in the Western United States, because that was one of the biggest jobs I had was let's get 20 auditors in every single org. So I would sit at the middle management level and I would figure out, okay, what do they need to do? How many people do they need to interview? How many interviews have to take place? Uh, What do they need to know to recruit people to staff? Okay, how, do, how long does it take to train somebody to do, to do recruitment? You know, you start breaking it down into a series of sensible actions that will result in 20 staff auditors being there, right? And it's going to take you months to get that done. So you do all that planning. You write out the programs. And this is, this is an example of real work that I did as a Sea Org member. You send those programs down. And you start telling the staff responsible to get those programs executed. And while you're in the middle of doing that, or while you're in the process of doing that, down comes an order out of nowhere, just out of left field. All the orgs are to now get four staff sent to flag for training. And the three guys that you had managed to get in Keokuk in training to become staff auditors are now ripped and they get sent to FLAG and uh, in Clearwater so that they can do this new kind of training that has nothing to do with being an auditor because that's the order that's on the line and those are the resources that are available. And it's not a new program where we're gonna recruit new people and, and take months of work to get that done because that takes too long. We need them now. And oh. so the order is everybody who can be sent to FLAG right now goes, and, and it just rips up the work that you've been doing, and it makes meaningless all that effort and programming and, 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 and time that you're investing in trying to do that from middle management, because upper management is cutting you off at the knees, oh, and that <laughs> happens over and over and over and over again.
1: And uh, I I would say that's probably pretty unpredictable and arbitrary.
0: Oh, completely unpredictable! You never know when when the tactics are going to change, when the strategies are going to change, when the new programs are are coming down from the top. It, th- these are random. It's really whimsical, based on um, Miscavige's you know uh, feelings that day. I guess I you know that the idea of of what is our long-term planning, what are we actually trying to do, is so poorly communicated from Miscavige that it, it, it really does make it difficult, really impossible to, to try to align what you're doing with what Miscavige is trying to do because you don't really know. You know, he talks about things like golden age of tech and golden age of knowledge and gives you all these, you know, here's all these revised books and here's all this revised stuff and and go and and and, you know, and and uh, be fruitful and multiply and make more Scientologists. And then you figure out ways to do that. And then it gets all cut off. At, and then you get cut off at the knees by the next new thing. And, and you're
1: still punished for it.
0: And yes, of course. And and to add, you know, injury to insult is they literally do physically punish you for your inability to keep up. And presumably that's pretty freaking
1: stressful. And <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit stressful. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: yeah, you could say that.
1: <laughs> and that just happens for year in, year out, and uh, you've there's just a onrushing tide of personal expectations, social expectations, and the sense of disappointment that comes with uh, sensing that you've failed your duty, and it just becomes kind of agonizing and prolonged stress. You got it. And that's not isolated to Scientology. It's just much more studyable in Scientology.
0: Well, it's exactly as with many things that we've discussed over the years with Scientology. It's a microcosm that speaks to the larger macrocosm, the the real world. I mean, all this stuff develops in the real world as well. But what we see in Scientology, and I want to stress this uh, now and forever, is that the dials are, are all turned up to 11 and they're there all the time. I really, you know, I see people in the comments sometimes when we talk about this, talking about how this compares to the job they had or when they were in boot camp or the this and the that. And I want to really get across that. I think I'm miscommunicating if I'm getting across that this is the same as what we experience in Wall Street or in boot camp or something, because it's not. This is this is a sustained effort and the difference is the, the the length of time that this is sustained is is exhausting. It is way beyond boot camp. It is way beyond a job on Wall Street or in a call center or boiler room or something like that, because it's twenty four seven. Your entire life is wrapped up in this. When you are in a group like Scientology, it's 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 not. It's a whole level, it's a, it's a whole nother higher order of magnitude of abuse.
1: I'd like to make a distinction here. Scientology has claims not just on the work environment or even the social environment, it also has claims on the moral perspective of the person.
0: Yes, If I'm
1: getting work to the bone in one job, uh, it's just a job. I can walk away, and kind of isolate my own personal assessment from uh, whatever the narrow focus of that job is. Yep. Scientology is not like that. There, The moral goal is so closely imbued to the organization that you end up with the inability to escape that stress.
0: That's right. You have That's the
1: right. inability to analyze outside of that stress.
0: Exactly. There is no walking away from it. And I think that's where the idea of um, the totalist group or cult comes from, right? That's this totalist idea is that it is all-encompassing. It's, it's your personal life. It's your social life. It's your uh, professional life. All of it is the same group, the same activity. And um, and to the degree that you are, you know, in that totalist culture or world, that is that is an artificial construct. I mean, you know, no no question about it. Just like going to work at IBM, it's a it's a group, but it's not life. You know, it, but you can make it that you can suck yourself into it, sink yourself into it so hard that you don't think or breathe or talk about anything else but that. Well, that's that's the that's groups like Scientology and they and and and, you know, people in at IBM might look at you funny if you if you were to, you know, go all in on IBM. Ah, you know, it's all you do is think and talk and breathe IBM and people might start looking at you funny in a group like Scientology. That's what gets you status. That's what you get rewards from that, too. And that's one of the reasons you keep sinking into it harder and harder is at the beginning, you're thinking, look at all this validation I'm getting. Look at how wonderful all of this is, all this love bombing and all this stuff that people are 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 really laying it on pretty thick at the beginning about how wonderful you are for, you know, for going all in. In this activity, and so you don't really see the awful coming until it, in, you know, until it's too late.
1: And there is awful coming from that—a um, constant series of stress activations. And to remember, the body's response to stress is oftentimes like an emergency system. And the more times you hit an emergency, the more times you activate an alarm the higher the risk of negative consequences. And just do that too many times, you're going to get a response assuming it's a false alarm. And you're going to start to see stuff break down. That happens in organizations, such as the frequent, "Eh, that's probably a false alarm. We're not really going to investigate this. Hey, boom, there's an industrial accident. What? What? There were five... Alarms going off. Oh, yeah, we assume they were all false alarms. That happens in industrial environments, which is why deactivating the alarms is a big red flag for hey, maybe there's something really wrong here. Yep. But when you have the human body, when you're in a stress response, your body uh, starts dumping a lot of cortisol, which is the major stress hormone, uh, which starts ramping up adrenaline uh, to start moving blood to your muscles and the other parts of the uh, fight or flight response. And normally it starts reducing inflammation. And it also forestalls a lot of the immune response. Because, hey, who needs uh, to be fighting bacteria when we're fighting a tiger? Priorities. Yep. But the thing with constantly making everything priority number one is that stuff doesn't get prioritized properly. So over time, the human body starts to treat uh, the cortisol goes from being anti-inflammatory to having an inflammatory response. And guess what? Inflammation uh, is linked to a whole lot of human health problems, like anxiety, chronic fatigue, uh, a whole lot of rapid aging. Inflammation is one of the major areas of study right now for degenerative diseases. And there is a measurable connection between chronic stress and a lot of these diseases and worth ha- health outcomes. One interesting situation was twins. Uh, uh, one twin became the CEO of a company, the other twin was just a department head. Guess what? The twin who was the CEO aged much faster and had measurable health problems, while the twin who had fewer, responsibilities and less stress ended up looking a lot healthier. Right. It is stress kills.
0: Exactly. And so we stress comment stress
1: is necessary but it kills.
0: <laughs> well, it degenerates the body faster. It wears you out faster and it's um and yeah, it kills for sure. It certainly can because it weakens your ability to respond, it weakens your ability to think. Uh, Think rationally, use the frontal lobes because you're concentrating attention in other parts of the brain. One thing
1: that cortisol does is uh, uh, encourage uh, neuron growth around some of the stress centers of the brain. Hmm.
0: Uh,
1: And also stress, cortisol seems to have a toxic effect on the growth of certain uh, pyramidal neurons. Uh, So if a kid's getting too much stress when they're growing up, that can have a negative effect on them.
0: Interesting. And according to, um, you know, the study that we were, uh, that that you sent me, which I will also link in the show notes on stress and decision making, you actually kind of have two different systems going on there. And so you have a, you know, your immediate fight or flight short term thing. But then this also, you know, um, opens the door to other you know, longer-term problems you were talking about. Yeah. So it's um, so it's not. It, so studying this is interesting because they comment in the study on the fact that, um, that because you have a couple different things going on when it comes to stress and studying stress and studying decision making done under stress, you've got. Um, you've got an interesting set of of studies and answers coming up on that and they're not always necessarily consistent because they're looking at different parts at the same time so it's it can get a little complicated i think is really the only point i was trying to make it's not a simple simon oh you stress somebody out they release cortisol that stresses them out and so all we need to do is calm everybody down and everything will be great uh, not exactly, because real emergencies do happen and do need to have a, a quick response. But, but there are ways of tempering this so that we're not being destructive to our health and good and you know, good sense in the long term. And this is where we really need to start changing our thinking about these topics overall. And this is this is a fairly recent, even if we go all the way back to the invention of labor unions and stuff, as I was mentioning at the beginning, it's still very recent history that we're talking about where we're even beginning to acknowledge the the issues at play here. Um
1: well I'd say it's very recent that we have scientific knowledge of it. Yeah. Because so I mean. this stuff is inherently hard to study until you get large groups of people who can fill out forms carefully. Yeah. And and one of the things that's been studied is the way cortisol uh, gets, cortisol levels lower over time. And some people uh, have cortisol levels drop more quickly than others. And when cortisol drops slower for some people, uh, they're more subject to some uh, stress responses than others. And the results are oftentimes not pretty. The ability to calm down is an ancient moral uh, precept, but it is a very present, organizational need, and it is a very new area of medical research. Uh, It's not just for a person's, it's not just because you care about a person that you want them to calm down. It's because uh, they're less likely to interact productively in a stressful situation. Like uh, there's a cop investigating something and a guy feels accused. And if he doesn't calm down, he's likely to uh, start acting aggressively towards the cop, which would be bad. Unfortunately, that happens a lot. And I think it's because people have a hard time calming themselves down. Then you end up with a situation in which, uh, as that happens lots, as people don't calm down, they're just going to be, their stress systems are going to be putting more wear and tear on their body. Uh, And that's another problem. So even if you don't care about your workers, you've got to freaking care about the consequences. And the effects of stress tend to be exponential, not
0: just additive.
1: Two units of stress are more dangerous than one
0: unit of stress exactly it's more of a it's more of a what do they call that a a logarithmic progression rather than a you know it's it it, the more it goes up like you're doubling it every time sort of thing is a more accurate representation of of how bad it's getting and uh
1: downtime is critical to that and the thing is (laughs) Uh, Have you ever tried to work for 20 hours without a bathroom break? Yeah. Are you thinking clearly at the end of it?
0: Of course not. Of course not.
1: Well, you've got a lot of stuff that needs to be released after 20 hours of working.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Uh,
1: And I think Hubbard, when he wrote something about people not taking stuff seriously and wanting to go bowling instead of studying Scientology. I think you fail to understand that when you're never bowling and only studying Scientology, you're not getting the stress relief you need to have a productive approach to stuff.
0: Well, exactly. It actually is leveraging an an easy-to-push button that apparently a lot of people have or that you can develop in people and that is a button around guilt and um and also associating the entire concept of not working with pleasure or fun or or that sort of thing and contrasting these two things and so oh you're off to go do that lesser activity that less important frivolous leisure time oh you're gonna go do that oh you're slacking you're not working you're lazy you are all these words you can throw into it i mean i i was at the receiving end of tons of this in the sea org and it really changes your way you're thinking because you start running this sort of you know you start self-policing and at least i did and I saw other people do this too, where you just could never get enough work done in a day. You know, it was just never gonna be enough, and um, and that creates its own set of stressors and problems as a result of that. So it's so it's it's amazing how this effort to try to maximize production, a la Jeff Bezos or L. Ron Hubbard, results in people not only being stressed by you by the leader, but stressing themselves once they buy into this concept that they're that when they're not working, they're doing something of lesser importance. Even if it's necessary, it's still of less importance, then it becomes this sort of twisted idea that it's really not as important and really I it's an option. it's not a requirement. And when you make downtime an option for people, they tend to go a little whack, you know. I sure A assume. little whack. <laughs> it's a technical term. Uh, well, no, I was responding to little, not whack. I know, I know, I know. Uh, but that's but I just wanted to I just wanted to kinda to, to talk about that for a second because it's not just, you know, slave master driving slaves. It's It's an occult situation or a high control group situation. You've got the people. You're there because they're dedicated. They get into this circle where they're doing it to themselves too. And that's where it gets particularly vicious. And I can
1: understand both
0: sides of that. Because I have certainly seen
1: people push to the point where they were just too tired to do anything at the end of the day which is not good, and I have seen people just take a nap when they were supposed to be working, Mm -hmm. and I'm not okay with that. Mm. Uh, And this wasn't a nap because there was no downtime. This was a nap because the guy was freaking lazy.
0: Of course. I mean, see, it's it's not that – this extreme then, end we're talking about justifies the other extreme end. Right. <laughs> this, it takes it takes looking at stuff
1: and trying to determine the probable outcomes of these uh, to make that kind of determination. That's right. But that takes mental effort. So much easier to simply say work is always more important than downtime. Whereas no, the downtime... Is part of the thing that makes work productive. And that is a harder mindset to get into.
0: That's right. Because the short-term look, the, the, the immediate idea is, but if I push these people to do 16 hours of work, I'll get twice as much as if they only do eight hours of work. And this is this is the basic basic completely false piece of information that human beings have run on other human beings since the dawn of fucking time. It's it's this basic they they think that people are just math equations. And it doesn't work like that. It's never worked like that. It's 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 a piece of common sense that isn't sensible at all but 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 people keep buying into it because they haven't had the scientific background or people
1: have a bias in favor of what is measurable and it's a lot easier to measure time than it is to measure output
0: well then they might have a bias towards what they think is easily measurable then and in other words they're just kind of you know lazy which is just really, it's really annoying. But there's also a lot of uh, there's also a lot of um, what's the word um, incentive on the part of management to convince workers that this is how things should be, even when they know it's not. You know, but because but, managers know, are judged so.
1: by short term uh, by their term in management, not by the productivity of the worker over the course of their career.
0: Right, because anybody who's actually been on a factory line or in an assembly line situation or production, you know, a heavy production situation for any real length of time, gets some experience at it, works at it for a year or two or three, quickly understands through the school of hard knocks that 16 hours of work put out by a crew isn't, Double what eight hours of work is. It's it doesn't the math doesn't work out that way, but it's usually some you know, bright bulb or greeny weenie or 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 somebody who just doesn't care about people at all, who you know throws this kind of no we're going to do sixteen hours and we're going to produce twice as much as eight hours right kind of thinking. It's 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 either very stupid or very malicious. Either way, it doesn't have a place. Anymore. And given the
1: frequency that it happens in organizations, I'm going to say stupidity.
0: Well, I and I would tend to agree. I think you'll get a I think you'll get a peppering of maliciousness in there too. But I agree with you that it's mostly ignorance and, um, and misguided, you know, pressure and all this, right? It, but it's but it really does stem from ignorance, which is why I'm encouraged by the fact that we now have science more more rigorous scientific studies being done of output versus, you know, hours of work done, and what does this mean, and how does this affect us in stress, and things like that. And I think I want to add to this now, just to sort of uh, put another little bit on top of this, is when maliciousness becomes part of the picture, It's I think that's another logarithmic (laughs) <laughs> you know, leap in awfulness of this picture. I don't. I don't. I think when you add a malicious streak in a manager, like an Elron Hubbard, like a David Koresh, like a like a Keith um, uh, Raniere, right Nexium even. You know when you add that malicious streak on top of it, then then you are creating threat in the environment. Then it's not just a matter of, well, we got to get the work done because this or because I'm paying you or because of this other thing. But when this maliciousness is, then is in, then it becomes really vicious uh, because that's where the environment becomes, um, Well, like I said, it can become threatening. And that's where I think we see, uh, you know, the PTSD type stuff come up, complex PTSD, stuff like that, where, where people are responding to. Not just it's, it's exhausting work, but it's actually threatening them somehow, you know?
1: Um, yes. And that's one, one reason why I was so interested in the musical chairs incident. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: were there two incidents? Uh, I know there was at least one.
0: There was one. There was the one major incident we know of, which took hours and hours of time. There was this musical chairs thing where they were playing the actual game of musical chairs and trying to, you know, stay in the seats and until the last person survived. And well, what was know. the penalty to that if you lost? Well, yeah. And the idea was that if you lost, if you couldn't, if you couldn't get a chair, then you were going to get transferred. This was a okay. This is a Sea Org thing and for those of you guys who don't know about the full background or story of this, this was detailed in the Going Clear documentary. Um, There was an incident where David Miscavige had a group of Scientology executives and senior managers, and he made them play a game of musical chairs with the music and the chairs and everything. But the the punishment was if you didn't win, you were going to get transferred to another continent that night you were the the plane flights were being arranged the uh you were gonna go pack your bags if you were married too bad if you had kids or relatives or anything too bad you're out you're gone You, you were you were shipping you to australia or spain or wherever miscavige wanted to send you and that was the threat of losing and these were all people who had spent a great deal of time as Sea Org members, none of these people were new. They had spent a great deal of time just jumping through an incredible number of hoops to get to the position they were at where they were directly under or, or very close to the seat of power of Scientology, David Miscavige. Right? They worked at international management. They worked at the highest levels of the church. So these were veteran Sea Org members, veteran Scientologists. These were not guys who had just started finding out about it a couple months ago. And here is the leader of the church, the guy you know, bequeathed from L. Ron Hubbard to supposedly to uh, lead Scientology and the crusade to total spiritual freedom for every every soul in the universe. And this guy is going to ship your ass to Australia because he's sick and tired of you slacking off and not getting your work done after you have done years and years and years of this, and this is what it comes to right so it was a so to say it was a stressful situation was a bit of an understatement
1: and uh I think. Imposing that kind of stress is part of how Miscavige and really any uh, tyrannical leader stays feared Yep. by constantly reminding people of their arbit- arbitrary power. That's right. That they right. keep themselves in the minds of other people. Yep. And it is that personal fear uh, and unpredictability that I think contributes to a lot of stress and contributes to the power of the tyrant.
0: Big time. Big time. Maybe a, maybe a way of putting that uh, succinctly or or interestingly might be that the tyrant's job is to is is to lead a life where he's never has to think about you. But you think about him all day every day. <laughs> Like, you're, you know, like the punishment you might receive from this person, the, um, you know, needing to meet their expectations, needing their approval, needing their kindness, needing their good words, and doing anything it would take to get it, including stepping all over other people in the process, that's the, that's the, the, the corruption of the, of the morality that occurs in, in that kind of a situation. Because you can guarantee that David Miscavige is going to leave that room, and he's going to go off and start tormenting some other people or thinking about some other problem, and he's not going to give those people a second thought, except to grumble about them or complain about them. But those people left in that musical chair situation, their entire life was wrapped up in that, and they couldn't think about anything else but it, you know? and that's not a new phenomenon and it's not new that it had
1: has health consequences. But what we're learning increasingly is a traumatic nature of those consequences yep. and that it looks a lot like PTSD, even if it doesn't stem from just one event. That's right. It's the environment that a person is in that can be traumatic.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and when you have a, uh, a continuing series of such traumas or or such stressors, that's where you get this thing we call complex PTSD. It's a theory right now. It's not. It's not like even a. It's it's not even officially in the DSM yet. But it's um. But it's pretty. It's pretty validated. It's a pretty validated idea. And um. And the long term consequences of that. Well, you know, we we've talked about that for years. I've been I've been recovering from it. So. You know, uh, it's work, man. (laughs) It's work getting through that and getting over that, getting over all that that accumulated stress. I've been doing this for eight years now, and I feel like I am just now free from, you know, so much of this crap. Uh, It's just a constant struggle.
1: And I will say that looking at uh, people who work during communism and people who worked after there is a huge psychological gap between them Mm. not just in terms of the market nature for their skills but in terms of uh how much risk they'll take in their job of how much trust they'll extend to other people uh and how people who i saw of a certain age who worked during communism versus people who worked in another poor uh, but non-communist country was still pretty stark. Mm. So take a look at a person from Greece and then take a look at a person from Bulgaria during this at the same age. Uh, the people from Bulgaria looked older. Mm-hmm. And you see people with an, in a number of very stressful organizations like the military. People look older. Uh, there was one time where we were gathered uh, around, and we just commented on, hey, you look maybe like you're three years older than you uh, should. Uh, and there were a handful of people who looked younger. And I think part of that was that they were had some weird, super healthy thing. So uh, the stress of the military really didn't impact them. But for most of us, it was pretty, it, it can break you down.
0: Yeah. I think this is most pronounced for most people in the office of the president of the United States where well, her, it's commented on routinely that after the first 4 years and certainly after the first 8 there is so much gray in their hair no matter how black it was or dark it was when they first hit office you know and this is everybody from you know Gerald Ford to Obama to everybody I mean they just that job you want to talk about you know, a stress-filled job. I, I can't think of anything more stressful than than being president of the United States. To be honest with you,
1: um, Probably being the president's day planner. <laughs> right
0: there, you go. There you go. So, anyway, yeah, it's uh, it's you know, it, it it's it's it affects all levels, and I think we we can see in Scientology certain lessons that we can learn from it. I really want to stress that. Um, that malicious streak, though, because that is that's the added benefit, quote unquote, the added, added feature of, of, of totalist groups, of of cults, of 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 totalitarian organizations that really exacerbates this. You know, so much of what we've talked about is is the in this show is the day to day of the business world or the workaday world. That people just kind of put up with, even though they really shouldn't. We really need to push back at all levels on this. But at the levels of the of the totalist groups is where you're going to see the the most damage done in the shortest amount of time. That is going to have the longest term consequences. And that's that's Scientology. That's you know the the, the Mormons. That's Nexium. That's that kind of a setup. So. Um, it can be not necessarily always obvious where the stress is coming from, the effects of it, the long-term effects of it are often suppressed and denied and invalidated until it's, you know, years after the fact. But these things are real, and we're and we're showing over and over again, you know, through research and through studies and through testimonials and people coming forward that these are real problems they're they're not fake problems they're not just in, in something that is coming out of people's imaginations and i and i i say these things because i'm pushing back on decades and centuries of false information and ignorance on this topic you know so i i uh, i really want to make a, a difference in this somehow in the big wide world and and get people to realize we need to be chiller <laughs> with each other. <laughs>
1: and uh, I think stress-related burnout is one of the major issues with productivity loss.
0: Yeah. And when you see
1: so many, oh, everybody here is lazy. What, you, you, you're in the galley. I'm going to crack down and make sure everybody works hard. It's just trying to intimidate people into overcoming the effects of burnout with the same sorts of behavior that exacerbates burnout. Exactly. And that's, mm-hmm. that, I think that's some of the perverse effects of the short term culture of Scientology mm-hmm. yep. and the lack of managerial experience. Yep.
0: I agree. And I think it also um, speaks to uh, the culture and attitude that L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, came out of both in World War II and in his um, sort of professional existence. He really didn't have bosses very well because he didn't deal with people telling him what to do very well. Um, Hubbard was was uh, was famously bad at that. Um, but he sure felt entitled to tell everybody else what to do, which, which I think is kind of a personality type and I find it an interesting one. Uh, you can also see this kind of thing reflected, if you really wanted to encapsulate it, something that just occurred to me is, as an example of what you just said, is um, is that scene of uh, Alec Baldwin in that old movie, Glengarry Glenn Ross, did you ever see that?
1: I've seen clips, I haven't seen the movie itself.
0: Okay. Well, there's a there's literally about a five-minute, 10-minute monologue or scene that Alec Baldwin comes in and does. And um and it was added for the movie. It wasn't in the play version of the story. And uh cuz his character wasn't in the in the play, but in the movie they needed this sort of to establish this this presence and this threat. Uh and that was personified by Alec Baldwin coming into this group of salesmen at the end of the day and telling them in no uncertain terms in very straightforward language that you know there was a sales competition and first place was this and last place was you get fired so somebody's losing their job tonight you know and uh and that and he gave this you know rather rather intense monologue on that and i think that sort of epitomizes everything that is wrong with you know the things we've been talking about is oh you don't you're not stressing yourself enough about your job to get results well let me stress you for you so as to kick you in the butt and get you going and which
1: is sometimes needed there was a there was a guy i knew who just had one speed whether it was when there was a very little work to do or an overwhelming amount of work to do and other people who were being worked raw Right. I was glad to see that guy go. But uh, you sometimes create an environment, uh, and I can't remember the name of this managerial uh, strategy, oh well, that where you fire the lowest, the bottom 10% of performers.
0: Yep, I've seen that.
1: Versus some metric. Yep. Okay, if you've got a lot of dead wood in an organization, that'll, that'll make things more efficient for a while. But if you keep doing that, you end up uh, making hard choices of getting rid of productive people. And you also run the risk of creating an environment in which everybody has to look out for their own stats and not cooperating with other people to boost their stats. Right. And that cooperation can be some of the most valuable stuff in an organization because knowledge and skills aren't distributed equally. You have one guy who really knows this system and another guy who's got to work with that system. You want them talking to each other, not fighting.
0: Exactly. As and some, man- Management that views people as um, expendable, replaceable, useless, etc. is is not really very good management as far as I'm concerned. And, there are six- uh, and I I think we're having to overcome centuries of nonsense. Still, I think we've really got a whole revolution necessary in the area of of management worker relations, and um, and I think we've got a long way to go with this, you know. But we can highlight this in cults as you know the most extreme examples to demonstrate the points we're trying to make, you know. Um, But I do think we've got a very broad situation here to deal with, and I think that people jump too quickly to, oh, he's expendable, he's this, she's that, you know, oh, these deadwood, these idiots, these people, when in fact, it's really a management problem, you know, because it's management's job to, to hire, train, establish, and run an organization and utilize the resources to the best possible fit, you know. And, uh, and and it's easy to blame all the workers and think management is, is the only people here interested in anything and salvaging the situation and, and all of that. And I, I don't see a lot of evidence of that um, in, in, uh, in groups like Scientology. That's for damn sure.
1: Well, if they would, then would you create a power base other than the leader?
0: Yeah, that's exactly the point.
1: And one of the notable features of some organizations is the way personal loyalty results in the promotion of managers who are not able to adequately diagnose and respond to a situation.
0: Yep. Exactly.
1: And that was notorious during the Civil War with a lot of complaints about political off politically connected officers being put into situations in which they got men killed.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That's also common in a number of scams in which uh, you have even the legitimate side of a scam business being mismanaged because the people at the top have to keep those people from talking to everybody else. Right. Uh, So, uh, yeah, let's move on. Yeah. But with cults, it is explicitly it is explicitly about an ideological goal. Okay, presumably about an ideological goal. So you have a legitimate basis for some loyalty concerns. But if it's a cult, it's about the personal loyalty issues, right? And that will automatically push things towards uh, a higher risk of getting unsuitable people.
0: Well, exactly, and and an extreme. Demonstration of loyalty to the institution itself, as well, you know, um, where you are, you know, demanded uh, very unusual things uh, for the sake of the organization, and the organization becomes all, and the individuals become nothing. So you have a cult of personality that can develop around the individual or the leaders or the leadership of a group. And you can also, with somebody like Miscavige, they can, they can turn that to personal loyalty to them, but also institutional loyalty as well. And I, I think that's important. Um, yes. Because you don't want either, both of them are are kind of equally bad for, for slightly different reasons. Now, here's a
1: question. How You mentioned a guy who had worked, what, for a month straight with barely any sleep on a project and who eventually was unusable as a worker after that
0: yeah yeah i ended up quitting yeah uh
1: was he the only one
0: was he the only one i ever observed do that who got who
1: worked themselves or got worked to the point that they were unusable and quit
0: oh no not at all he was just the the most uh obvious example of that that i came across but he wasn't the only one I mean, it was something I twigged on as a Sea Org member about halfway long in my stint as a Sea Org member was I realized this is an organization that uses people up and spits them out, and I'm going to have to be careful to not let myself fall into that, and of course then I did fall into that, but that was something I observed about the nature of Scientology or the Sea Org specifically as as a group. Is it will use you up. It, uh, they, they, the picture in my mind that stays with me to this day that I remember that I, that I sort of created it at the time was a wood chipper. You know, you can just throw as you, you can just keep throwing stuff in there and it just keeps spitting it out it, 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 after it chews it up. And that's what Scientology, that's what the Sea Org does to people. And I and I just went, wow, this is not good. And at at first, I saw that very clearly and thought, well, we have the tools to correct that. We can probably fix that. And then I realized, no, this is a systemic cultural problem. And that was that was by the time I got out, it was it was clear to me that that was never going to be solved.
1: Have you reconnected with those people after uh, you got the people who left after you got out?
0: I have connected with some people who have left, but I didn't connect with that guy in particular, or okay. some other people I think of who who meet that criteria. I have not. No, I have not. Some of them are still in. Do you think they
1: still bear the scars of that uh, that stress?
0: Well, I believe they do. Yeah, but I'm what I'm saying is I don't. I'm not even in touch with them. Okay, they're, they're still in the. They're still Scientologists. Even if they've left the Sea Org, they stay loyal to the institution. Okay. Which, um, is why I it, which is why I brought up that institutional loyalty point because it's not just loyalty to Hubbard or loyalty to Miscavige; it's also Miscavige the can that.
1: hijack the loyalty to the institution Correct. for his own ends.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, because I think that's how that works. Because Miscavige will never be the founder. He'll never be source. The same way Hubbard is, even if he wears a pin. Well, it, that's as close as he can get, which is why he wears it all the time, right? Because that pin indicates he speaks for L. Ron Hubbard. But that's he as thinks close the dwarf protests can. too much. What's that? He thinks the dwarf protests too much. <laughs> yeah, probably. So, anyway, there you go. I think we'll probably move toward wrapping up the show now, but I, I think we've covered some important stuff here.
1: Well, um, I think the big takeaway is that working people to the bone and stressing them out doesn't just impact productivity in the short term or even on a 12-week cycle being a net negative. It also uses them up uh, and leaves them less productive than they would have been otherwise.
0: Exactly. And a
1: long term organization, and let's remember Scientology's been around for a while. They've they have stressed people out to the point that some of their most devoted followers became some of their most devoted critics. That's right. Not because they were opposed to the goals, but because they couldn't achieve those goals.
0: Well, I will say yes. Not, not they couldn't achieve those goals. They'll. They also. I, I will add to that. They found those goals were unachievable. And that, uh, that's an important distinction.
1: That's one added factor to the stress.
0: Yeah. Uh, when you find out you're working for something that can't be done. The, then it then it changes everything.
1: Um, yes. Uh, I I think people like Jeff Hawkins and the like would have been willing to keep on working if they believed that uh, they could have gotten stuff done. But they couldn't. And they just got burnt out by the stupid system. And the management side of it, even when they wanted to use them productively, couldn't because they didn't understand what they were freaking doing.
0: There you go. I, I, I agree with that. So, yes, it's it's a progression. I mean, coming to a realization that the goals of Scientology are unachievable is is not the thing that usually gets people out. I I mean, so fair enough. I mean, you do run into enough brick walls that you go, "Wait a minute, what am I doing?" and and you finally have an epiphany and go, "Okay, I need to get out of this." But then in the in the process you usually try to find out what the hell just happened to you and that's when it becomes clear that you know, it was all nonsense in the first place. And that's why you couldn't achieve those goals is because they were unachievable. So, you know, kind of one follows the other, I suppose. But I just... Running, I, into,
1: running into a brick wall a few times at full speed is going to leave you with some concussions.
0: Exactly. Exactly. But it's not... People are willing to do it. They're willing to to make incredible sacrifices. They are willing to, to, to sacrifice even their lives for a cause if they if they think that what they're doing is is useful, is helpful, is in some way meaningful, and and I and I I only stress this thing about the unachievable goals of Scientology because um, because it makes all of that work and all of that effort and all of that sacrifice and suffering a joke. It makes it a complete waste of everybody's time when they're all trying to do something that can't be done. And I think that's actually part of the problem with groups like Scientology, as opposed to a group like SpaceX, which has a difficult task in front of it as put forward by Elon Musk, but it's not an impossible task, it's just a big job. There's a lot to do. There's millions of moving parts, but eventually that job can get done. Scientology's goals are unachievable. They will never be achieved. We will never have a world without insanity, war, or criminality, and we're certainly never going to have OTs. And uh, you know, because because even if we achieve something that would, even if we achieve something that we might consider
1: that. We'll just redefine them until it's uh, uh, another thing to achieve.
0: Yeah, well, moving the goalposts and all that's a whole another layer of logical fallacy. But yeah, good times. All right, man. Well, thank you for helping me talk about this again this week, and your and, and all the things. You is you wonderful observations and and very insightful commentary, and I really do appreciate your 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 time when and, and work with me on this. So, thank you.
1: And uh, remember, rest is part of productivity. Uh, God said rest. As a religious extremist here, I'm going to say rest is a commandment. Go forth and take a break.
0: There you go. Beautiful. Thanks, (laughs) Zipran. And folks out there, uh, thanks very much for listening to the show and for inviting us into your homes and making us a part of your life for a little while. I hope that this was uh, worth your time and effort to do so. And and if so, consider support the channel. And with that, I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.